I don't have time for that. Welcome back to the Cowboy Show. Move along. Move along. So our three people, yeah. episode 90. Before we forget, something I meant to mention, we, we, in the last episode we played Akadaka, Caught With Your Pants Down. Right. And uh, I wanted to talk about Sasha Baron Cohen. Oh, um, <laughs> I watched the first two episodes uh, of his new show, Who Is America, right. on the flight back from Athens. Um Fucking brilliant, I've got to say. Absolutely funny as fuck mm. and brutal. Absolutely <laughs> brutal. Fucking British. And, of course, uh, there was this Republican politician from George's House of Representatives, Jason Spencer, who <laughs> Cohen got not only to say nigger, 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 <laughs> But uh, also got him to drop his pants, expose his naked butthole, right. and run around backwards saying, I'm going to make you a homosexual yes. by rubbing his buttocks. He's part of uh, Cohen, who's playing the role of a, like an Israeli terrorism expert, said this is the way. If, he ever gets a t- if the Republican ever gets attacked by ISIS, this is how he should is, handle yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, uh, to get out of Brilliant. it because they're terrified of of, of becoming homosexual, um, and and uh, Spencer has since resigned. Yeah, like I was telling my boys about it when I got back, and one of them, Hunter, was saying, nah, "That can't be real. Like this has got to be set up, right? These guys know what's going on. No, no. This is a." And I was like, no, no, this is, I'm pretty sure this is real. And they're like, no, no. And then of course Spencer not got so much criticism. Uh, even from his own party, that he ended up resigning. But the thing is, I was laughing with my boys about this yesterday. I think this is there's ten episodes in this series. Only two have aired. Now that means there's a fuck ton of people out there in America who are nervous, who have yeah. done interviews yeah. with one of Cohen's characters. They now realise what they've done, and they know their life is over. Basically, right. that this is going to come out. If there's any suicide. Right. Yeah. Mass suicides what, from people that were on Cohen's show. Was it the first or second show? Because I've been seeing them, but I've heard a lot of coverage uh, where he got some of the Republicans to supposedly joke about arming elementary kids with, with guns in schools. I think it was the first one. Yeah, first he got one. a number of them to agree that arming four-year-olds is, is, is a great idea. Right. And they do, a, they do a television ad for guns for children dressed with the guns dressed up as farm animals. God. Um, and how about you? You've got to support a bill to arm four-year-olds. Right. Um, he also, I think it was in the second episode, had Dick Cheney on, <laughs> got him to sign his waterboarding kit. Oh, God. Um, uh, and make jokes about, you know, torture and waterboarding. Um, what a cunt. Yeah, and he had Bernie Sanders on and Ted Koppel. He tried to – he has a couple of guys from the left on, but it didn't get very far because they were too smart right. and saw it coming. Right. Uh, they were like, like very quickly, both Bernie Sanders and Ted Koppel are like, what's going on here? This is ridiculous. Yeah. But the Republicans that he has on just go all the way. They don't – you know, they just – like it's one Republican couple he has on in the in – the, I think the first episode he's dining with them in their mansion – and Cohen's playing the role of like an extreme left NPR host. Oh, God. And he tells them that in his household, <clears throat> you know, they try and uh, teach their children gender neutrality. Um, and, and he also talks about, so he says his son is not allowed to pee standing up and his daughter <laughs> has to pee standing up. And it gets on her feet, but it's okay. 
Then he says his daughter's just started menstruating and he has her, they have her menstruating on the American flag oh. to teach her about the bloodshed that's been caused by imperialism. Oh. And then he starts talking about it and they, this couple are going along with it. They're shocked, but they, they go, they're not like calling bullshit on it. Then he says that his wife, and to their, to their um, credit, they're fairly respectful, this Republican couple. Pretty the wife is trying very hard to shut her husband down every time he tries to interrupt. She's like, no, no, let's hear him out. She's really trying to be open and right. respectful, and I, I give her credit for that. But then he starts talking about how his wife is having sex with a dolphin. <laughs> and um Yeah. What? And they're like, really? Like how do you how do you find that emotionally? And he talks about how he puts on flippers sometimes and oh, trying to win wow. her back from a dolphin. Yeah. And anyway, it's funny as fuck, man. Watch it definitely. It's brilliant. It's bold. Oh, uh, I don't know how he hasn't been killed yet. Yeah. Um, anywho. Security guards. Yeah. Where were we? Back into the Cold War. Right. So we, we were talking about a number of things that happened early in 1946 that uh, shifted Truman and his, his attitudes and policies towards the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So there was uh, uh, Drew the, the revelations. Right. Yeah, the revelations that the, U- that the Soviets had been spying on the US uh, during the war and particularly on the Manhattan Project that went, and these revelations were made public. There was the uh, speech that Stalin mm-hmm. gave. Right. There was Kennan's long telegram explaining his view of the Soviet view of the world and his suggestions for what they should do about that, which was a containment policy, um, support European countries, uh, give them a better vision of the world, and also look after their own backyard at home. Right. Um. The the fourth and certainly the most conspicuous hmm. to the general public of the four events that transformed the political culture of Washington in 1946 was a speech given in early March by our old friend, <coughs> Big Pig, uh, Daddy Pig, uh, Winston, uh, I'm a blue blood and you're not, Churchill, at Westminster College in Truman's home state of Missouri. Ooh. Oh, and just real quick before we go on, it, um, the uh, the Kennan telegram was a secret sta- uh, State Department document. So, yeah, so only those in the know or certain rank are going to be able to read it initially. But like you said, this speech is for everybody. And I think Churchill is, is purposefully making it, you know, fit for American consumption. Now, let's remind everyone that Churchill is no longer the right. Prime Minister of England. Slightly he's, out. He's slightly <laughs> out, yeah. And also, let's remind people that Truman doesn't like Churchill. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't trust him. Yeah. Do- doesn't trust him, doesn't like him. Mm-hmm. In his private correspondence during sort of Potsdam and even before Potsdam, he refers to Churchill as a bit of a buffoon. Who does? He doesn't have a- who does Truman like? He doesn't like Burns. He doesn't like Stalin. doesn't like... Uh, Churchill. He did like Burns. He, oh, at first he did like he did like him at first. That's yeah. true. Um, he likes Stimson. He likes. He likes his uh, wife. Yeah, he likes his wife. He writes her letters. That's that's about it. Yeah. So so the first question in my mind is why is he getting uh, Churchill invited to speak at Westminster College in Missouri, and why is he there? Why is he supporting it? 
what's going on here? Do you yeah. think, Ray? Well, the the three um, the three events that, that you just mentioned that are changing, or or I I would argue that maybe confirming the direction that Truman already wants to go in. So he he doesn't trust. Uh, Stalin. He needs he needs uh, America to be based on uh, military and economic power. But like we were saying in the other episode, you have to have the American people along with you because, as we said, they're they're thinking the war is over. Bring our boys home. We're going to go back to the way we were. But but um, Truman needs the American public with him, and he can give speech after speech after speech. But if you can get someone like Churchill, he's a living legend. The Americans have gotten used to his voice for years over the radio during the war. He is in some ways beloved, maybe because of people haven't spent five minutes with him. But the point is, um, I, I think this is a part of something that Churchill probably wanted to do and Truman wanted and needed him to do. But that's just my interpretation based on what comes out of it at the other end. <clears throat> so the speech uh, is often referred to as the Iron Curtain speech. Um, I play it mm-hmm. in the uh, exit music, I think, of our shows, a, a clip from it. It's very famous. Everyone's heard it. The right. speech is actually, the official title of the speech was The Sinews of Peace. Mm-hmm. Now, it actually started to come together well before all of those things that we've talked about, the things that happened in early 1946. Right. It goes back to the previous October 1945, Mm. Churchill had been out of power for, what, like four or five months. Free time. And he he received a letter from the president of Westminster College, a guy called F.L. McClure, asking him to uh, come and give a talk on international affairs at the school. And there was a postscript at the bottom of the letter from Harry Truman, saying, this is a wonderful school in my home state. Hope you can do it. I'll introduce you. Best regards, Harry Truman. So the Westminster College president sent the letter, the invitation, basically to Truman, who forwarded it on to Churchill. But let me ask, getting being asked to speak at a school, probably no big thing for Churchill, but what is to be said is a whole other matter. And you said the invitation went out in what, late 1945? Yes. Okay. So, no, October, I October, 1945. October. Okay. So, yeah, so an invitation is one thing, but obviously that's a long time between uh, the invitation and um, when the speech is given. So, I'm just throwing that out in March of 1946. Yeah, six months away, five or six months away. And it's a long. Long way to go to give a speech at a school. Like, quite honestly, if a school in Brisbane Phone it in. invites me to give a speech, right? I'm like, really? A uh, speech at a school? Is there something better I can do with my time? How far away is um, Brisbane? I'm, I'm a, yeah, I, I live in Brisbane. Yeah, no. yeah, um, yeah right. I, uh, I wasn't sure that you did know. I, um, you know, I'm a busy man. I'm a very busy man. I'm an important man, Ray. I, I don't have time to be giving oh, I speeches um, no, no, I know. to people. Yeah. Um, how many times you know, have you turned around? How, busy how many times have you? We both are. Well, yeah. How many times on a rooftop in a hotel have you turned around to me and said, uh, Ray, could you hurry it up? I know you're a busy I'm, man. I'm a very busy man. Uh, so what's going on here? Well, from Churchill's perspective, I think 
he wanted to stay in the limelight, obviously. Yeah. Um, as we know, he didn't see himself as a spent force. Right. He's old as fuck. Doesn't matter. Um, I can't do matter. it. That's right. Yes, <laughs> I can have another one in me. Um, I have more to give. Orgasm every day. <laughs> OED, motherfuckers! Lube me up. <laughs> I'm ready to get back. I'm ready to get back into it. Um, so he wants to stay relevant. He wants to get to know Truman a little bit better too, I think. I mean, obviously they didn't get along very right. well when they met at Potsdam. Um, and, you know, uh, Fulton is really right in the heartland of America. Right. It's in the middle of nowhere, It's but it's right in the middle of where things are going on in terms of, I don't know, the Midwest. Is it the mm-hmm. Midwest? I don't yeah. understand. Yeah. West, Mid. <laughs> um, and, but it was also obviously important to Truman, and I think Churchill sees this as an opportunity to get close to Truman and, and, and keep his profile up back home in the UK. It's obviously going to get some press. It's going to get some coverage. He likes to feel important. He hopes he might get a little bit of a reach around from Truman while he's there. Sure. Um, and, you know, he actually gets picked up by Truman from the airport. Ooh. They take a train from Washington to Jefferson City, Missouri together, and they play poker the whole time there. Truman apparently takes all of Churchill's money. Yeah. Tr- Truman was a very good uh, poker player. I uh, had been playing for years, so I'm not surprised by that. Now, um, Churchill and Truman both received honorary degrees from the school. And can I just say <laughs> for the record, where... <laughs> what the fuck? What the fuck? Where are our honorary degrees, e- Ray? Like, Even if it was a, from a college in a prison... I don't. I would go. I would go to get it. Where in the fuck? We've done a lot of work, but I, I'm even I'm if it was from the University of Western Samoa, I oh. would go <laughs> and pick that. That's the real reason Churchill went out there. He's like, oh, uh, honorary degree. Trump, fuck yes, Trump University. They don't, something. <laughs> they, <laughs> they don't get given out every day. I'm turning up for that fucking gig. <laughs> It's got to happen, right? It's got to happen. After everything we've done, yeah. right, the, yeah. least the least is a fake degree. The world could do for <laughs> us is a fake degree. I don't even care if it's a real, I don't even care if it's one you got off the back of a fucking Kellogg's cornflakes packet. Just give me a fucking honorary degree. I want the robe. That's what I'm saying. I want to walk across the stage so I can flash everybody. But yeah, like in Athens, we should have... Anyway, too late. Next time. And and where's my commencement speech? I want to give a commencement <laughs> speech. Like that there's no sex in the champagne room or whatever that was. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'd give I think I would give good commencement speech. I really do. You give a lot of good speeches. Yeah. yeah. I do. Yeah. Anyway, uh according to the New York Times that covered the event uh, about 8,000 Fulton residents turned up, along with 20,000 visitors from all over the place. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty good. Um, yeah, it was a big, it was a big deal. Uh, it was a heck of a spectacle, according to the president of Hillsdale wow. College. Strong words. Uh, 
1946. Don't, don't get any stronger uh, in Fulton in 1940. Well, that was a heck of a spectacle. I tell you. Oh. Yes. So um, now this speech is often seen as the opening of the Cold War, Mm. even though he's really talking about peace, the sinews of peace, as it's called. Yeah, how did that get lost, which I'm sure we're going to go into later, but I did not know beforehand, and I should have known this, that Truman, obviously being the president, had already read a draft of the speech that's about to be given by Churchill. Read it and signed off on it. Yes. Ah, gotcha. So obviously by the time it comes around, I mean, I'm sure the speech went through several drafts, but by the time it comes around, Truman knows all the stuff that we've talked about, the spies, he knows about mm-hmm. uh, uh, Stalin's speech. Um, he also knows that he's not going to give away their secrets on the bomb. Right. And I'm sure that they've they've worked together, he and Churchill, on this. Like we're basically going to start – positioning the Soviets as the bad guys mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. We need to change the public perception of the Soviets as our friends and allies who helped us defeat Adolf right. and the Nazis to the new bad guys that we all need to be scared of and we need to yeah. get ready to go to war with. And the, and the Drew Pearson was a good start because now the Americans are like, whoa, 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 you're our friends and you've been spying on us, you know, so you feel violated or whatever, not in a good way. And so so the process has started, but now they need something more to really push the uh, the needle to, to make the American, average American on the street think you can't trust the Soviets and they're out maybe to get you or hurt you or do something to your country. Now, um, I'm going to read a little bit of the speech because why the fuck not? I'm here. Uh, I do the greatest Winston Churchill impersonation in history. Yes. As everyone knows. Oh, yeah. Um, Here we go. Um, Bulldog, bulldog, bulldog. I'm glad. No, no, no. I'm glad. No, never before. No, I've got to get up in the nose more. I'm glad to come to Westminster College. This afternoon. And I'm complimented that you should give me a degree. The name Westminster is somehow familiar to me. (laughs) (laughs) I seem to have heard it before. Indeed, it was at Westminster that I received a very large part of my education in politics, dialectic, rhetoric, and one or two other things, like kitty fiddling. (laughs) In fact... We have both been educated at the same or similar, nor at any rate, kindred establishments. <coughs> okay. Let me, let me cut to uh, the bit that everyone's famous with. Yeah. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Budapest, all these famous cities and the populations around them lie in what I must call the Soviet sphere. Churchill's vivid picture of a continent divided by an iron curtain helped change the public mood. Once the press had portrayed an alliance of three equals. 
Now Uncle Joe was turned into a scheming despot, forcing whole countries into submission. From the east, Soviet cartoonists responded in kind. These crude caricatures were part of a new type of war, in which governments taught whole populations to demonize the other. I was going to say, your voice changed. on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, don't judge me. No, I'm not. No, no. It's, I'm, trans- I'm transitioning. <laughs> God, I knew it was coming. <clears throat> well, it's your, yeah, you should. You started it. Um, you said you're not feminine enough in that dress. <laughs> and you proved me wrong. <laughs> so, uh, Churchill... Um, yeah, he says near the end, I do not believe that Soviet Russia desires war. What they desire is the fruits of war and the indefinite expansion of their power and doctrines. What is needed is a settlement. And the longer this is delayed, the more difficult it will be and the greater our dangers will be. Which I find amusing, coming from the guy who bitterly opposed the collapse of the British Empire, which controlled 25% of the world only a few years earlier. If, um, if I can you know ask what it reminds a, me of? Sorry, go ahead. This whole thing? What? What? Um, Oceania was at war with East Asia. Oceania had always been at war with East Asia. What is that? I've heard of that. Uh, it's um, from 1984, George Orwell. Ah. Um, just the idea that, you know, these are the bad guys now. They were our friends last week. Now they're the bad guys. No one remembers that they were our friends. Uh, they're just the bad guys. Uh, anyway, sorry, I think we've got some lag. What were you saying? Yeah, so follow-up question. I get why the part of Churchill's speech where he talks about hope and hope for the future and that we need to constantly be working with the Soviets to make sure that there's no chance of miscommunication and and war because it would be horrible because now there's atomic weapons. I get why that has been lost in history because the Cold War came. Do you have any idea about how receptive the American people were at the time to this part of Churchill's speech about peace and hope and and striving for constant or improved communication? Well, Ray, let me ask you this. Um, you're 50. Uh, you've, you've, you've got a degree in history. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many times have you heard the peace part of the Churchill speech in I heard, your lifetime? I heard it tonight. How many times have you heard the from Trieste in the beast to the and an iron curtain has fallen on Europe? How many times have you heard that bit? Uh, 50,000. Yeah, at yeah. least. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's just the times you've heard it on this show because that's how many episodes we've done. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think, I I don't think anyone has heard or read the rest of the speech. Uh, The, the, you know, the attention always focuses on the Iron Curtain bit. Um, The bit where he's talking about, uh, you know, needing peace. Right. Uh, And and also, you know, there's this this one I like. there is, however, an important question we must ask ourselves. Would a special relationship between the United States and the British Commonwealth be inconsistent with our overriding loyalties to the world organization? I reply that, on the contrary, 
it is probably the only means by which that organization will achieve its full stature and strength. Mm. So, you know, basically, um, he says uh, he agrees with Bevan, the foreign secretary, that it might well be 50 years that they could have uh, a peace treaty with the Soviet Russia, with Soviet Russia. So, you know, he was in the speech sort of calling for putting the UN and peace with Russia over their own interests, uh, because it is in their interests over some of their other interests, let's say that. Um, And he, he talks about a temple of peace. Workmen from all countries must build that temple. If two of the workmen know each other particularly well and are old friends, if their families are intermingled, if their sons are popping their daughters' cherries, if they have faith in each other's purpose, hope in each other's future, and charity towards each other's shortcomings, if they share their wives late on a night, late in the night over a couple of bottles of red wine, whoop, whoop, to quote some other, <laughs> why cannot they work together at the common task as friends and partners? So, yeah, the big part of the speech is about that, but um, we only heard the bits where he said the Russians are the bad guys. So... So again, Heels, um, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> go on. The Iron Curtain part gets memorized. Everything else gets dropped. Truman is sitting behind Churchill when he gives a speech. And I just can't help but think that when the speech is over, Churchill turns around, gives Truman the wink. Truman gives him the wink right back and mission accomplished. Yeah, but again, there's other parts like before that Iron Curtain bit, he says this. Um, nobody knows what Soviet Russia and its communist international organization intends to do in the immediate future or what are the limits, if any, to mm-hmm. their expansive and proselytizing tendencies. I have a strong admiration and regard for the valiant Russian people and for my wartime comrade, Marshal Stalin. Ah. There is deep sympathy and goodwill in Britain, and I doubt not here also, towards the peoples of all the Russias and a resolve to persevere through many differences and rebuffs in establishing lasting friendships. We understand the Russian need to be secure on her Western frontiers by the removal of all possibility of German aggression. We welcome Russia to her rightful place among the leading nations of the world. We welcome her flag upon the seas. And above all, we welcome constant, frequent and growing contacts between the Russian people and our own people on both sides of the Atlantic. But doesn't he have to say that? So that sounds friendly enough. Yeah. I know, but why isn't that the part of the speech that we've heard 50,000 times? Like... Yeah, we all accept that they want security from aggression and we welcome them in their place in the world and may their first child be a masculine child and let's all get along, right? But uh, what we hear is the next bit. Right. Um, The Iron Curtain bit. And I think Truman was probably okay with that. Oh, yeah, this is definitely deliberate. But I've got to point out the hypocrisy of this again. The United States has taken over... Mexico, bits of, you know, Spanish uh, territory, colonial conquests, uh, Hawaii, et cetera, et cetera, not to mention all of the Native American land. This is in the previous, you know, 50 years. Um, uh, Europe, uh, sorry, England has, has got this massive empire that it's built that it's, you know, slightly dissolving a little bit at this juncture but maintaining very strong 
political and economic ties with its global empire. So they're still saying, look, yes, it was okay when we did it, but you can't do it. The, the business of empire is now closed um, to everybody. Now that we've got ours, there's no longer, that's no longer tolerated. Uh, sorry, sorry you missed that window of opportunity, but now let's all get along. Yeah. I mean, and this again gets back to the same things that caused World War II in the first place. Germany, Japan, Italy, as we talked about in a much earlier episode, relatively small countries, uh, relatively uh, low in terms of natural resources, uh, needed to expand. They felt they needed to expand their empires, um, and they were shut down by the other world powers. No, sorry. As you said, the business of empire is now closed. That's good. I like that. You, did you steal Thank that, you. or did you uh, make that up? That's good. Uh, all mine. Wow. Look at you. That's, yeah. that, your work's done for this year. You can, hour, you can... hour three. <laughs> Fuck you. Hour three. It's, yeah. I'm, I'm done. Uh-huh. I'm done. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yes. So this is the famous uh, Churchill speech. Uh, let me just read the last paragraph because it's good. Mm-hmm. Let no man underrate the abiding power of the British Empire and Commonwealth. Because you see the 46 millions in our island harassed about their food supply, of which they only grow one half, even in wartime, or because we have difficulty in restarting our industries and export trade after six years of passionate war effort, do not suppose that we shall not come through these dark years of privation, as we have come through the glorious years of agony, or that half a century from now, you will not see 70 or 80 millions of Britons spread about the world and united in defense of our traditions, our way of life, and of the world causes which you and we espouse. If the population of the English-speaking commonwealths be added to that of the United States, with all that such cooperation implies in the air, on the sea, all over the globe, and in science and in industry, and in moral force, there will be no quivering, precarious balance of power to offer its temptation or ambition or adventure. On the contrary, there will be an overwhelming assurance of security. If we adhere faithfully to the Charter of the United Nations and walk forward in sedate and sober strength, seeking no one's land or treasure, seeking to lay no arbitrary control upon the thoughts of men, If all British moral and material forces and convictions are joined with your own in fraternal association, the high roads of the future will be clear, not only for us, but for all, not only for our time, but for a century to come. Somebody shouted out, well, get the fuck out of India. And he said, fuck you, fuck you drag him away, have him whipped, <laughs> dirty little sand nigger. <laughs> God, no. Hey, that's what he called them. That's what he I called know. them. I know, I know. 100 lashes. Hey, so so. let me just sum up and, and, and ask a question, um, get your opinion on something. So Drew, Drew Pearson's announcement and Stalin's speech which pretty much shows the Democrats and the Republican lawmakers in America that cooperation with Russia is now not an op- is, it's not an option because it would be bad politics. 
Then you've got the spine, you know, the spine that Drew talked about. And so now, I guess, at the very least, suspicion of the United of uh, USSR is now moved into the American mainstream. And now Truman has Churchill, who is a statesman, a living legend, give a speech, even though there's a bunch of peace in there. We all know that that gets ignored. It's about this iron curtain that really grasps the American imagination. And we hold on to that. So now Truman has got political cover. So in a very short time from, say, the second half of 1945 to whatever part of 1946, there's these major events that seem to have affected Truman. However, he seems to have made up his own mind to go down this course. These are just things that happened, I think, independent of, uh, of his decision to be tougher with the Russians. But despite these events, if Truman really, 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 really wanted to cooperate with Stalin, try to get along, be more like FDR, do you think he could have, despite these four major events, changed things and tried to keep an open semi-honest communication with Stalin and try to deal with him the way FDR had been dealing with him during the war. Hmm. It's a good question, man. Like, I think at this juncture, the relationship between Stalin and Truman and Churchill is not good. I mean, it was never good between Stalin and Churchill, really. Um, right. And it has never been good between Stalin and Truman. Uh, between Stalin and FDR, there was some possibilities, but Truman got off on the wrong foot, um, and I think Stalin had no respect for him. Um, <clears throat> so, no, I don't think there was any hope here. I honestly don't think anything Truman did or said would have got him anywhere. Maybe if Henry Wallace had been president instead of Truman, maybe. Ah, right. Um, but at this juncture, I think, uh, and we'll see this because we're going to talk about the Novikov telegram. From the Soviet perspective, the Americans are coming. And um, right. the, the American government political system is moving further and further to the right in terms of its views of world domination, not just uh, versus the Soviets. And the Russians are going to be preparing for that. Um, and even if they, if there was any sort of high-level diplomatic conciliation, I don't think it would have been serious. I think underneath everyone would have been scrambling yeah. to get their own piece of the chessboard secured. Because um, I think we all told you know you read history and you read about the right man and the place at the right time to save the day. Where here's here's the opposite. Here's Truman in some ways, the wrong person at the wrong time, if somebody else had been able to follow up FDR, like you said, Henry Wallace or someone else, certainly not Burns, but um, maybe it could have went differently. But um, I do know that Truman didn't like big government. He was already looking forward to cutting back the budget, bringing the guys home, uh, um, uh, discharging them from the military, cutting back on the budgets. Uh, but it was not his inclination uh, to to work with or to see the Soviets as equals and to work with them and to treat them honorably. I think between his personality and the events around him, I don't think there was a chance of this going any other way. Now, how he's going to manifest his suspicions is yet to be seen. 
Um, but for right now, I think you're right. I don't think there, this could have went a di- a down a different path given all given his personality and all that's happened in this short of time. Yeah. At this juncture, yeah. I think the cat is out of the bag. Right. The question now is what to do about it. Now, as we said in an earlier episode, most Americans didn't want another war at this stage. Uh, America also didn't have a tradition of carrying a high military budget during peacetime. And there was a lot of people in Congress and probably even Truman who believed that this whole idea of, of massive military spending was something that the old defunct European nations did. The US was an exception. They didn't play that game. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, you know, they kind of wanted to keep the government budget low, keep the government small, keep the ba- budget balanced. A lot of people were predicting yeah. that there would be a massive period of inflation and economic stagnation now that the war is over, the whole military Keynesianism would finish because they wouldn't be hiring hundreds of thousands of people for war-related activities with all and funding all of that. There'd be millions of soldiers returning home, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. This is going to have a big impact on the economy, so they couldn't afford to spend a lot of money on the military. So, And also, I guess the Soviet threat seemed a long way off. Like, they didn't expect the Soviets to be knocking on their door tomorrow. Right. But at the same time, they didn't want to be accused of appeasement, like, you know, um, the the British war of the Nazis uh, in the 30s. Right, 1930s. Yeah. Yeah. So So, so again, just the point that you were making, so Stalin wants to make sure he doesn't ever get caught with his pants down, and now Truman is deciding for America, we're not going to get caught with our pants down. And when you have two people think the two leaders thinking like that, that's the essence of the Cold War. It's all about your pants being around your ankles. So one of the first things that he did was to screw Stalin on Iran. Now, as we mentioned mm. in the past, Stalin had troops in Iran during World War II, ostensibly to stop the Nazis from getting there and taking the oil reserves. The British also had troops there, and they had a long history of getting oil concessions out of Iran, as we talked about in depth on the Bullshit Filter series when we talked about Syria and the history of the Middle East. Um, Now, Stalin was demanding an oil concession from Iran that was equivalent to the one that they gave the British. But American and British diplomats were working behind the scenes with the Iranian leader Ahmad Kavam and also secretly with the heir to the Persian throne, Reza Pahlavi, to demand the removal of Soviet troops from the northern part of the country and to suppress the Iranian Communist Party, the Tudor. Now, Stalin agreed... To do all of that, all right, I'll, I'll take my troops out and we'll, we'll mm-hmm. stop supporting the Communist Party in Iran if you give me an oil concession. And they right. said, okay. <laughs> right. Did they keep their word? But. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah, as soon as the Soviet troops were gone, the Iranians backtracked. Um, uh, uh, supported by Washington, reneged on the oil agreement and settled back into the pro-Western camp, which 
bit them on the ass a few years later. Again, we talked about that a little bit in our Bullshit Filter series on Syria, but we will uh, talk about that more on future episodes of this show. Right. So again, a whole bunch of not trust backstabbing going around. And these guys are allies, so... Were. Were allies now, not so much, yeah. The show's over. Now, remember, at the same time, the uh, Truman administration pushed through Congress a low-interest loan to Britain, about three and three-quarter billion dollars. It was a big Mm. sell. A lot of people didn't want it, didn't think Britain could pay it back, like, fuck the British, really. Um, But the, the administration put together this argument that, we, you know, if, if we give them money and help them rebuild quicker than they would otherwise, they're going to become mm-hmm. a lucrative market for American goods. Sooner. Uh, yeah, sooner. So it's an investment in building a market for American products, basically. Right. Yeah. So this is the first time we see this kind of thinking after World War II about, mm. well, you got to spend money to make money when it comes to post-war reconstruction. We're going right. to loan them nearly $4 billion, but we will build a market 100 times that size for American yeah. goods and products over the next uh, products and services over the next fifty years. So, yeah, it, it, it's good economic sense to win-win. Yeah, and 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 it got approved. <laughs> um, so at the same time, around about this period, the U.S. is trying to solidify their control of the political process in Germany, um, mm-hmm. in their regions, and also the regions that the other Western powers control, Britain and France. Um, you know, their concern gets back to what Kennan said uh, in his telegram. Their concern is that under this extreme economic deprivation that the people of Germany are living under, they're becoming targets for targets for communism. So uh. the Americans, led by General Lucius Clay, uh, Cassius to his friends, supported the anti-communist parties in Germany and tried to kickstart the economy. But France and the USSR blocked those efforts. Because they didn't want a quick revival of German power. Even France was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, (laughs) whoa. Germans, bad guys, remember? No, strong Germany, not good for France. Cool your fucking heels, Cassius Clay. (laughs) And that's when General Clay changed his name to Muhammad Ali uh, and gave up the military and became a boxer. Not many people know that. He also... he did the reverse of what Michael Jackson did. He instead of a skin bleaching treatment, he got a skin darkening yeah. treatment. He went undercover so people wouldn't know it was the same. That's guy. science. Yeah, nineteen forty-six science. Um, so the US had to take it more slowly in Germany. Also, at the meantime, they're backing Chiang Kai-shek and the KMT in China against the communist forces led by Mao Zedong. And mm-hmm. in Indochina, the Trump administration is Trump. Fuck the Truman administration. <laughs> so hard. Right. I'm going to do that so many times. <laughs> is secretly backing the French in defeating the Viet Minh, 
the communist-led forces of Ho Chi Minh. But didn't Churchill just talk about, or someone just talk about letting everybody decide for themselves and freedom and all that shit? As for the whiteies, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Whiteies, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, not in this case. Uh, what we say in public and what we do in private, <laughs> totally right. different things. Gotcha. But I don't think people realise that America was involved in Indochina this early, 1946, 1947. They yeah. were already, it was small scale compared to where it got to, but they were already supporting the French to defeat the independence movement that was happening in Jeez. Indochina or Vietnam. They they just got the Japanese forces out. The people are thinking, hey, maybe, and no, America supporting France to keep a hold of it. Yeah. Nice. Fuck you, sit back down. That's right. Um, but the real story I want to talk about in this episode is the Novikov Telegram. So it's written by Nikolai Novikov, the uh, Soviet ambassador in Washington. He wrote mm. his telegram in September of 1946. Now, it's mostly a retort to the uh, Canon telegram, which he had been given a copy of. He was aware of it. Obviously, it was intended for State Department, but was doing the rounds. Everyone was like, hey, fuck, have you seen this? This is awesome. It was like a viral <laughs> email. It was like a cat video. Right. He eventually uh, got to him. So right. he wrote a reply. Uh, again, this is a private reply for Stalin and the leaders of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And as I said in an earlier episode, the, no one in the West had even heard of this, let alone seen it until yeah. the 90s uh, when it was came out during Glashnost. Wow. Okay. Uh, we, we got a copy. Uh, we got Molotov's copy came out. It's got Molotov's notes on it. Um, so Novikov basically is stressing the dangers of American economic and military domination worldwide. And, huh. and again, it's interesting because we got to see Kennan's view of the Soviet Union. Now we get to see Novikov's view of America. Um, right. And again, it's 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 not. This isn't a propaganda piece. This isn't a speech that Stalin's giving. This is right. this is the view of an ambassador back to his bosses about what he believes America's agenda is. And keep in mind that Stalin is only as good as the intelligence or information that he's getting, just like every other leader. <laughs> Let's get to the Novikov telegram because we're running out of time. Yeah. Um, I'm going to start off. We're going to read bits of it again. Uh, here we go. Uh, I'm not going to do an accent. Don't, no. uh, don't make me do that. He starts off. Reflecting the imperialistic tendency of American monopoly capital, Damn. U.S. foreign policy has been characterized in the post-war period by a desire for world domination. This is the real meaning of repeated statements by President Truman and other representatives of American ruling circles that the U.S. has a right to world leadership. All the forces of American diplomacy, the Army, Navy and Air Force, industry and science have been placed at the service of this policy. With this objective in mind, broad plans for expansion have been developed to be realised both diplomatically and through the creation of a system of naval and air bases far from the US, an arms race and the creation of newer and newer weapons. 
So that's so, the opening salvo. Yeah. So according to everybody, everybody else wants to dominate the world. And they're probably all right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think in the West, we're used to this idea that it was the Soviets that wanted to rule the world. Absolutely. Where, the, from the Soviet perspective, it was the Americans that wanted to rule the world. That's how, that was the lens through which they saw each other, and I think they were both right. Yeah. As Again, as we said before, you know, the, they both wanted their own socioeconomic system to be successful. They realized they weren't really compatible. Both feared that the other one was going to try and stop theirs, so it was yeah. a winner-takes-all kind of approach. And whereas America feared the largest uh, land army in the world of the Soviets, the, uh, as far as this gentleman is concerned, here's what America was going to do. So Europe and Asia's economies are wrecked. They're going to need consumer goods. They're going to need industrial and transportation equipment. And because America has still got its factories up and running, they're going to be able to offer these things for the immediate future, make a huge pile of cash, even though they've already got a huge pile of cash, and they're going to use that to infiltrate the local economies. You take over a country's economy, boom, you take over the country. American world domination. All done. It's up to the Soviet. And, it's up to the Soviet Russia to stop them because they're wearing the white hats. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and the the amazing thing here is that Novikov anticipated all of that mm -hmm. even before it happened. He saw it coming. He he ah. could see the Marshall Plan and the U.S.'s uh, takeover of the European economy before it even happened. Wow. <clears throat> Let me continue. Uh, so he, he goes on for a while talking about how the European economy was destroyed by the Second World War and America came out of it stronger than ever. Then he says, however, on the other hand, the expectations of those American circles have not been justified, which were based on the Soviet Union being destroyed during the war or coming out of it so weakened that it was forced to bow to the US for economic aid. Uh. In this event, it could have dictated such conditions which would provide the US with an opportunity to carry out its expansion in Europe and Asia without hindrance from the USSR. In reality, in spite of all the economic difficulties of the post-war period associated with the enormous damage caused by the war and the German fascist occupation, the Soviet Union continues to remain economically independent from the outside world and is restoring its economy by its own means. In addition, at the present time, the USSR has a considerably stronger international position than in the pre-war period. Thanks to the historic victories of Soviet arms, the Soviet armed forces are on the territory of Germany and other former enemy colonies, Countries, sorry, a guarantee that these countries will not be used again to attack the USSR. As a result of their reorganization on democratic principles, in such former enemy countries as Bulgaria, Finland, Hungary, and Romania, regimes have been created which have set themselves the task of strengthening and maintaining friendly relations with the Soviet Union. Um, let me stop there. So he's talking about democratic principles and it being a good thing for the Soviet Union. Right. Those countries will be free. I was just going to say, because that confused me at first. I thought he was being sarcastic. But if those are democratic countries and they have the right to freedom to choose who their friends and allies are, 
and the Russians are a very powerful country militarily, then they'll want to be our friends because obviously we can stand up to anybody. We stood up to Hitler and they won't be forced through economic means to kowtow to the Americans. Yeah, exactly. And and again, from a Marxist-Leninist point of view, uh, in capitalist countries, you normally have a small number of the wealthy that are driving the political and uh, geopolitical agendas of countries. When right. the people uh, have control, they're probably going to have different ambitions and different aims. He goes on to say, in the Slavic countries, Poland, Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia, liberated by the Red Army or with its help, democratic regimes have also been created and are consolidating which maintain relations with the Soviet Union on the basis of friendship and mutual aid agreements. Now, we know that from the American and British point of view, Poland is not a democracy. They feel like it's been stacked with communists. But from the Soviet perspective, it is a democracy and it has a good democracy because it's full of communists. If I can read one section, this is where um, this note mirrors uh, Kennan's note as far as what Soviet Russia's mission should be. So he writes, after he talked about uh, the USSR still has its own foreign policy and its own, uh, it's pulling itself up by its own bootstraps. This being the case in Eastern and Southeastern Europe, the Americans can't help but regard this as an obstacle in their path of expansionist policy. In other words, Soviet Russia is the only country that can possibly stand up to the United States and its attempts to dominate the world. And and you almost get the sense that he's saying by we are urged by history to do so. So America is like we've got to control and we've got to contain Soviet Russia. Russia is going. We can't let the Americans have their way and use their economy to dominate the world. So both see themselves as potential victims of the other country, and it's up to them to stop the other country. Yeah, they both see themselves as the world, the saviors of the world. Exactly. Right? From the yeah. Other guys. Yes. He writes, um, right now, U.S. foreign policy is not being determined by those circles of the Democratic Party, which, as when Roosevelt was alive, try to strengthen cooperation between the three great powers, which composed the basis of the anti-Hitler coalition during the war. When President Truman, a politically unstable person <laughs> with certain conservative tendencies, came to power, followed by the appointment of Burns as Secretary of State, and meant the strengthening of the influence of the most reactionary circles of the Democratic Party on foreign policy. The constantly increasing reactionary nature of US foreign policy, which is a consequence of this approach to policy advocated by the Republican Party, has created a foundation for close cooperation in this area between the extreme right wing of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. This cooperation of the two parties, formalised in both houses of Congress in the form of an unofficial bloc of reactionary Southern Democrats and the old guard of the Republicans headed by Vandenberg and Taft, Taft, is especially clearly demonstrated in the fact that in their statements about foreign policy issues, the leaders of both parties are essentially advocating the same policy. I'm sorry, the last part was butchered. Um that both parties were in agreement as far as taking on Russia. I'm I'm not sure what you said. And foreign policy issues. Yeah. Okay. So basically again, like, wow, so fucking prescient. 
the extreme right wing of the Democrats and the Republicans basically have the same view on foreign policy, and nothing has changed. <laughs> it started here. Yeah, and this guy yeah. called him on it, and this guy, yeah, this guy saw it. And I don't know how much detail you want to go into, but as he as he feels like he should offer proof because these are pretty bold claims. He goes on to talk about the size of the uh, the U.S. Army, the U.S. Navy, about setting up bases thousands of miles away from the American border. Clearly, America is projecting its thinking offensively. It's it's projecting its military power, and it's using its very developed economy to pay for this military apparatus. Yeah, I'll read some of those sections because I think it's interesting. So he says, um, For the first time in the country's history, in the summer of 1946, Congress adopted a law to form a peacetime army, not of volunteers, but on the basis of universal military conscription. The size of the army, which is to reach one million men as of the 1st of July 1947, has been considerably increased. At the end of the war, the size of the US Navy was reduced quite insignificantly compared to wartime. At the present time, the US Navy occupies first place in the world, leaving the British Royal Navy far behind, not to mention other powers. The colossal growth of expenditures for the Army and Navy, comprising $13 billion in the 1946-47 budget, about 40% of the entire budget of $36 wow. billion, and is more than 10 times the corresponding expenditures in the 1938 budget, when it did not even reach $1 billion. That's the These enormous budget sums are being spent along with the maintenance of a large army, navy and air force and also the creation of a vast system of naval and air bases in the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. According to available official plans, in the coming years, 228 bases, support bases and radio stations are to be built in the Atlantic Ocean and 258 in the Pacific Ocean. The majority of these bases and support bases are located outside of the United States. Good gracious. Oh, I, I just want to add on to what you were talking about, the universal military training that, uh, that they were hoping to pass. So General George C. Marshall hoped uh, President Truman and Congress, obviously, would pass the universal military uh, training, which would require all young men to receive one year of military training. So the Army would always have a reserve pool, uh, a a group of young men to come behind them. But, of course, this never happened. But when this did not happen and the Army fell to 5,380,000 men in June of 1948, Congress barely begrudgingly passed the Selective Service Act of 1948 that we mentioned uh, vaguely in a couple of uh, episodes ago that I had to actually register for when I was uh, 16, for, you know, for selective service. So they didn't get their mandatory one-year service, but they did get where all all young males had to sign up, and so they would know, you know, the numbers in case they ever had to draft or, or to pull young men in. So they were getting ready. Uh, for war or to be ready for war. Yeah. And as we know, these bases that he's talking about still exist today. Yeah. The world is saturated with American bases. Yeah. Um, And as I've said in previous episodes, you don't need to take over a country if you can put a base on that country. (laughs) It's essentially the same thing. I mean, you, you, deeply integrate into their economy and mm-hmm. then you put a big fucking military base 
on their land, and you pretty much control the country. um, Presto change If you need to. Right, Right. exactly. It's gunboat diplomacy, really. Mm -hmm. A Um, a little more subtle, but the same thing, yeah. No, less subtle. A gunboat's not actually on your land. When it's actually on your fucking land, but, but when the message that's less is, subtle. but the message is, we're here to defend you, and here's some money to help with your economy. Oh, by the way, why don't you buy your goods from us? Mm. You know. But I see your it's, point. It's like when, it's like when the mob come to your corner store <laughs> and they say, "Protection." We yeah, we now are going to protect you right. from. Anybody else who wants to rough you up? Oh. You go, oh, well, that's great. Can I still do? No. And by the way, yeah. uh, you're going to get a package every month. Uh, you need to move that package, and there's <laughs> going to be some hookers operating out of your uh, closet at the back. But we're Can here I say for no you. to any of that? No, no not no. really. Yeah, but yeah. we're here to protect you. <laughs> you're welcome. By the way, I saw another good film on the plane uh, called The the Drop. You seen that? The Drop. No, I haven't heard of that one. Uh, Tom Hardy and James Gandolfini. It's James Gandolfini's last film. Aw, okay. Basically set around a bar, I think, in... I don't know, maybe Boston or, or somewhere, maybe not, maybe somewhere in Brooklyn. Yeah, Brooklyn, I think. Um, and, uh, yeah, mobsters and that kind of stuff. Uh, really good, really nicely done. James Gandolfini, brilliant as always. Um, right. Very different perform, very different role performance for him than Tony Soprano, but uh, just still fucking great. And Tom Hardy's good in it as well, very good. Okay. Um, uh, back to back to Novikov. The situation – shit, you fucking – The situating of American bases on islands often 10 to 12,000 kilometres from US territory and located on the other side of the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans clearly shows the aggressive nature of the strategic designs of the US Army and Navy. The fact that the US Navy is studying the naval approaches to European shores in a concentrated manner is also confirmation of this. All these facts clearly show that their armed forces are designed to play a decisive role in the realisation of plans to establish American world domination. In recent years, American capital has been being introduced into the economies of Middle Eastern countries quite intensively, particularly in the oil industry. At the present time, there are American oil concessions in all of the Middle East countries which have sources of oil, Iraq, Bahrain, Kuwait, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia. American capital, which first appeared in the Middle East oil industry only in 1927, now controls about 42% of the total proven reserves of the Middle East, less Iran. Of the total proven reserves of 26.8 billion barrels of oil, 11 billion belong to U.S. concessions. So I, I just want to interject for a second because what what Kennan said was if we contain them, their system of government would be forced to turn in on itself, and because of the way he perceived the uh, the Stalinist rule, it would it would consume itself. It, it would be it would uh, it would implode. So how, how do you how do you if if you were asked by Stalin, we're, we'd say like we're putting bases all over the world. We're not going to attack you. We're going to contain you so you destroy yourself. 
Does that sound any better than being attacked? I mean, there's no way that these two sides at this point can get together in a room, talk, explain their position, and have the other person go, yeah, okay, I can see that. I mean, it's just a a complete breakdown of trust or the ability to see the other person's point of view. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of self-justification in all of this stuff. Mm, um, yeah. But yeah, it's it's certainly... I mean, yeah, it's a hard thing, really. I mean, if you genuinely believe you need to contain Soviet expansion as interest, then putting bases uh, supporting all of these countries militarily, it makes sense. Right. On the other hand, if, you, if, if you're on the Soviet side and you don't have plans for expansion, you just see America putting bases everywhere, you're, you're like, like well, shit. shit, we need to protect ourselves. So it's a chicken and an egg thing. But, yeah. you know, interestingly, when the Americans were asked about this, they said, look, we're not, this isn't, a threat. We're not about world domination. We're just all about the base. What? What? A real, a real quick point. So we all know that America is obsessed now that the war is over, not going back into re- recession. We have a very developed, very complex, very um, productive economy. We need a huge market to sell stuff so we can not go into reception, uh, recession. But the point is, at what point? Is it not about business? I mean, wherever American money goes, American military hardware is going to go with it. So, I don't know. It's just just very strange to me that uh, at what point did did they even lose sight of, oh, we were just doing this at first just to, uh, we wanted to build up your countries after the war just so we could start selling to you. But now that you throw in the um, the beginnings of the Cold War, and suddenly the arms have to go along with the money. I don't know. It just seems to have. I don't know if it snuck in on them, but I, I think they very quickly forget this is about just economics. This is about protection from supposedly the Soviets trying to take over the world. No, it's always planned that way. The point of military from the dawn of history. The point of military is to support your economy. Mm. The point of having a military is to stop people from coming and taking your shit and to help you go and take other people's shit. (laughs) That is the entire point of a military. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's hour three. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Uh, yeah, I do not disagree. Let me just wrap this up. It's fucking hot. It's in the middle of winter. It's like 32 degrees in my office. I'm sweating like wow. a dog, and i got to go to a soccer game. Um, he, Novikov also writes about Palestine. He says, Palestine, where the U.S. has recently displayed great interest, creating many difficulties for Britain, can be cited as an example of the quite sharp differences in U.S. and British policy in the Middle East, as is occurring in the case of the demand of the U.S. government to allow 100,000 European Jews into Palestine. Mm. American interest in Palestine, outwardly expressed as sympathy for the Zionist cause, actually only means that American capital is expecting to become rooted in the economy of Palestine by interfering in Palestinian affairs. The choice of a Palestinian port as one of the terminal points of the American oil pipeline explains a lot about American foreign policy on the issue of Palestine. Ah, 
It's all about money. Mm. Money, 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 money. And he concludes, he concludes with this. All these steps to preserve the great military potential are not an end in itself, of course. They are intended only to prepare conditions to win world domination in a new war being planned by the most warlike circles of American imperialism. The time frame for which, needless to say, no one can determine right now. It ought to be fully realised that American preparations for a future war are being conducted with the idea of war against the Soviet Union, which in the eyes of American imperialists is the chief obstacle in the American path to world domination. Such facts as the tactical training of the US Army for war with the USSR as a future enemy, the situating of American strategic bases in regions from which strikes can be launched on Soviet territory, the intensified training and reinforcement of Arctic regions as tactical approaches to the USSR, and attempts to pave the way in Germany and Japan to use them in a war against the USSR testify to this. So this is the internal view, for your eyes only, of the United States' foreign policy in 1946 from the Soviet ambassador Nikolai Novikov. So if you're Stalin and you read this, what, what's your reaction? What's your impression? Because that's all Stalin has to go off. I mean, this is his American expert. How's he going to know anything different? So whether this guy's right, wrong, or how, or right to a certain degree, all he has is what this guy has given him. And that's the end of episode 90. We'll be back in a few weeks with uh, our next episode. Uh, Hope you're all well. Uh, Don't forget OED. (laughs) OED and naked waiting. These are the things I want to leave you with. Can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.